We cannot properly understand ourselves unless we understand ourselves as part of a temporal spectrum. We don't know who we are unless we know where we've come from and where we're going. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to Disillusion, Distracted, and Discontent, part three of six from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul originally taught this series as part of a Sundays in July seminar series at Grace Community Church. In part one, Pastor made two observations about the moment in modern culture where we live. Number one, many are no longer citizens. And point number two, Consumerism is now rampant. Those two were part of nine observations. Yesterday, observations four, five, and six were shared, and today we'll hear observations seven, eight, and nine. Now, if you missed any of the first three parts, don't worry. Pastor Paul will summarize all nine in part four on Monday. Answering these observations scripturally helps explain the problem of discontentment fear and anxiety in modern mankind, and particularly among the prosperous in Western culture. Today we'll hear observations numbers 7, 8, and 9, and realize the problem of discontentment is not limited to the secular segments of society. Here's part three of Disillusioned, Distracted, and Discontent. My kids are happy all of the time. We joke about it when, when people see photos of our family and our kids, you know, Laura and I will say that was the one second that day when everyone was smiling. <laughs> the problem is that contentment is not found by escaping. Contentment is a skill that must be learned, and it must be learned within the complications of real life. It must be learned within the reality of a broken world. Escaping is never the answer. Seven we now put off responsibility. We put off responsibility. Uh, an author called Christian Smith, social scientist, wrote two books over the last, I think, maybe 20 years, one called Soul Searching, one called Souls in Transition. He studied a very large number of teenagers in America, and he tracked with them all the way into adulthood. And he was trying to analyze the secularizing influences on their life. Or to flip that question on its head, he was trying to analyze what is it, humanly speaking, that keeps a child within the religious stream that they've been brought up in after they've left the home? Uh, for us, we would be asking the question, what is it that keeps a young person in church when they're no longer under their parents' authority? From a human perspective, he came up with three conclusions. He said, for those that have stayed within their religious stream, for those that have stayed in church when their parents are no longer there on a Sunday morning saying, you've got to get up and go to church, normally, as they grew up, they had at least one parent living out a meaningful faith in the home, articulating the gospel clearly, and the subservient convictions that come with that. 
You know, and I hear that and I think we cannot, I think maybe one of the dangers within parenting is that we begin to assume that our children know what it is we believe. We just assume that they know what we believe, both the gospel itself and all of the convictions that come out of that. And Christian Smith was saying, there is great value in being specific, articulating what the gospel is and all of the convictions that come with that in the home to your children repeatedly. Second, he says, normally there has been at least one other adult within the church who is not their parent making an investment in them. At least one other adult, not their parent making a meaningful investment in this young person. And again, I ponder that and I think we cannot overestimate the benefit of people in the church, influencing my children with regards to biblical truth. Uh, I want my children to grow up knowing it's not just mum and dad that believe this. They have a, a special relationship with other adults who have greatly impacted them. Third conclusion, he says, normally those that have stayed within the church have assumed responsibility at the proper time. And that's the point I want to focus on. They've assumed responsibility at the proper time. We have become a people that have resisted assuming responsibility at a young age, uh, increasingly so. You know, it's instructive to note the word teenager was invented around the 1940s. It wasn't a word before 1940. Before 1940, and in most other generations around the world prior to this one right now, when somebody transitioned from 12 to 13, they just made the jump from childhood to adulthood. A young adult, but nevertheless an adult. When they were 13 or 14, they were no longer considered to be a child. They were now an adult. With that came some privileges, for sure. But so also there came responsibility. The word teenager really hasn't helped us. Now, this is not the sum total of the problem, but, but the word itself is not helpful. We've created a bracket from, say, 13 up to 20, whereby we try to shield our children from the responsibilities that other generations saw entirely appropriate to put upon them. We have now become a people that seek to keep our children back from work rather than prepare them for work. And that bracket, I would say, has been increasing. It keeps increasing such that we are now putting off assuming responsibilities for longer and longer and longer. People are getting married far later. People are having children far later. And what Christian Smith does is he tries to analyze that one conclusion, that one observation, those that stayed in the church assumed responsibility at a proper age, he says, you know what? When they get married at 20 and then they have a child, they realize, yikes, we need help. It's a very sobering thing to be a parent. And they say, we need people around us. And they stick in the church because they realize that there are people here to help them. Now, there are many, many problems to this, but one of them is that if we have a generation of people that won't assume responsibility for themselves, then we can't assume responsibility for each other. Societies in the past that have flourished have typically had generation upon generation coming up 
who know how to take charge not only of their own lives but those of others. As we have people that that are no longer equipped to do that, society as a whole is suffering. And as we start to feel the pains of that, so we end up in a position of feeling unsatisfied and discontent. We put off responsibility. Uh, Number eight, nearly there, we have lost a sense of virtue. We have lost a sense of virtue. What does that mean? Virtue, if you were to look it up, or if I was just to ask you for a definition, we would probably think that it means obtaining a moral standard. If somebody is virtuous, they have obtained a moral standard. It's not altogether wrong, but again, at its core, the word virtue, a Latin root, means strength. And that's important because virtue, before it means obtaining a moral standard, it means exercising strength, and specifically strength in and of yourself, that is self-control. The essence of virtue is that if if you're virtuous, you are able to exercise self-control to your benefit. You're exercising self-control so as to reach a certain standard. At a societal level, we need to exercise virtue. We understand that we need to exercise virtue corporately. We need to exercise self-control collectively in order to flourish. And I think... You know, social scientists talk about this in terms of freedom. We like freedom and we want freedom, and it's a good thing. But we understand that that freedom has to be controlled. We cannot simply pursue freedom unrestricted. It's been said that freedom is its own worst enemy. If you pursue freedom unrestricted, then it starts to become something that undermines itself. There's no restrictions at all. I saw this played out. We know it intuitively. I went to the LA Science Center a few weeks ago with my kids. Just me. Okay? Six children, LA Science Center. My goal for the day was to bring home the same six children that I took. No blood injuries, no broken bones. That was the goal. We got home that night. I brought the same six kids home. We got home that night. We're having dinner. Laura said, kids, tell me one thing you learned at the science center. I said, Laura, that was not the goal of the day. (laughs) It was not an educational trip. We just had to survive today. And I was impressed that at least one of my children could say something they'd learned. Anyway, at one point during the day, our youngest, Patrick, who is coming up on two, he's in his stroller and he's buckled in so I don't lose him. And, you know, the other kids are exploring and he wants out and he's he's struggling around and he wants to get out. And it wasn't that busy. So I thought, okay, let's do this. Unbuckled him. He gets out. So I've just given him freedom. What's the first thing he does? It's to reach up for my hand. Um, That's not the response I'm looking for. (laughs) That's not the point of the story. I trust that you know he loves me, okay? That's, that's given. I'm trying to illustrate the point about freedom. He knows intuitively, as a two-year-old, that he has to restrain his freedom. He has to impose limits. So he's given freedom, and immediately he seeks to restrain that freedom by holding my hand. Because if he doesn't, then he gets lost. It becomes self-imploding. It undermines itself. As a society, the same is true. As we pursue 
freedom, it has to be restricted. And sadly, because we are so preoccupied with freedom, we've lost all sense of restraint or self-control. I read an essay recently highlighting this very point. The essay was called Morals and Manners. Uh, I think the author was Patrick Deneen. You should read it if you can. Uh, He makes the point by focusing on the most everyday of things that is cutlery, the knife and fork. He says, why is it that we use a knife and fork when we eat? It is not to make eating easier. It would be easier to eat with our hands. Come to our place around six o'clock every evening and and you'll see that. (laughs) Talking about my kids now. Or with Patrick, it'd be easier to take the hands out altogether and just go face to plate, right? (laughs) We don't use a knife and fork because it makes it easier. We use a knife and fork as a means of restraining ourselves. It actually makes eating harder, but why do we do it? Because we understand that if we don't, then we'll become animals. We become animals when we eat. So at the most foundational level, we know that we have to restrain our liberty. Now, listen, he goes on to say, if morals are connected to manners, and I think there is a connection, it is telling that we have become a society who more and more and more are seeking to eat with our hands. How often we buy food now that is designed to be eaten with our hands. In fact, more than that, our consideration is to eat with our hands whilst walking. We've abandoned the sense of sitting at the table as a means of restraining ourselves. And I think he rightly concludes, to walk down the street eating a sandwich with our hands is an example of the fact that we don't have the self-control to sit at a table and eat with a knife and fork. Now, it's a silly illustration, but the point is this. If we're doing it in that area, then we're doing it in far more important areas we are failing to exercise the self-control that is needed in order to flourish as a society. We have lost our sense of virtue. And so I think we're we're slowly starting to realize at a societal level the self-imploding reality of that unhindered freedom. At an individualistic level, this is problematic because Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed, not free in an unhindered way. The freedom that Jesus gives to us is a freedom that is supposed to be hindered and restrained by his commands. And we are slowly abandoning that sense of restraint. Okay, number nine, and last point, we are overly invested in the present. We are overly invested in the present. Uh, T.S. Eliot argued that the defining characteristic of the human race is not the opposable thumb, nor is it our ability with language. He said the defining characteristic of the human race is our ability to take stock of the past, to look forward to the future, and to bring both to bear at the same time on the present. We seem to have a unique ability that animals don't have to look back to remember the past, to consider the past, while at the same time considering the future, and to bring both to bear on the present, to make our decisions in light of what has gone before and what is coming ahead. Not only does this set us apart, but it becomes an incredibly important feature 
in the way we live. Uh, think about them in turn. As we look back, as we are a people that have a sense of memory, that memory creates a debt, a sense of debt that is good and proper and right. So I don't have memories of D-Day. The, the memories that we have of D-Day are a collective memory. And it's important that we keep those memories alive because what they do is they foster within us a sense of debt to the soldiers that fought for us. And it's good that we have that sense of debt. It's not only debt, but it's gratitude. And it starts to, and it rightly should, affect the way we make decisions today. Similarly, as we look forward and we understand that we're not the end game, but there's another generation quickly coming up behind us, what that does is it fosters a sense of responsibility, a right and a proper sense of responsibility. We don't simply make decisions based on ourselves and our own interests, but hopefully we make decisions based on how it's going to benefit or affect those that come after us. And we are the generation of the now. So more so than ever before, we have severed those connections with the past and the future, and we live increasingly in the now. It wasn't that long ago when American schoolchildren were made to memorize the Gettysburg Address. And then why did they have to do that? Because it instilled in them a sense of where they've come from, a sense of gratitude and debt to those that were before. We are consumed with the immediate And again, I don't think technology helps us in this sense. One of, the, one of the priorities of the time in which we live is efficiency. And we want things now, we want it immediately, and we don't really think about the consequences. And, and that does start to translate and transfer to how we think about the world generally. We start to believe that we're self-made self-makers. We fail to realize that we're only here today because of those that came before us we start to lose the connection between us and the previous generation, and we don't realize the way in which they worked and they fought in order that we could enjoy the life that we enjoy today. And similarly, we don't think in the same way about the future. And that means that we have an unhealthy suspicion of all things past. We tend to reject things that are of tradition. We assume that it's wrong. And we look to the future with uncertainty, supposing that we can't in any way properly prepare for the future, and therefore we may as well just live for the now. And it's not difficult to see how this relates to discontentment. We cannot properly understand ourselves unless we understand ourselves as part of a temporal spectrum. We don't know who we are unless we know where we've come from and where we're going. We lose all sense of why we do the things the way we do them, why we think the way we think if we don't think rightly about the past and the future. And so our decisions are not properly informed, and that leads to discontentment. Now, Laura said to me last night, you have to give them a sneak preview of next week, otherwise this morning will be so depressing. <laughs> so we have a few minutes to do that. And it was my intention to do that. Uh, I've just made nine observations this morning about some of the issues that we face as a society. And there are more that we could talk about. Um, how does the Bible respond to these issues? There's many things we could say. There is, I think, one doctrine 
that most emphatically addresses these problems. What we've been talking about today would be classed as sociology or more broadly anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. So who are we and why do we do these things? You would categorize this talk according to the, the, the theological strand of anthropology and the problem so often is that we begin in the wrong place. A biblical anthropology has to begin on page one of your Bible. Specifically, a biblical anthropology has to begin with the fact that you and I are created in the image of God. We are created as God's image in his likeness. Now, if you search the scriptures for that doctrine, you're not going to find many texts that mention it. But the scarcity of the references do not do justice to the significance of the doctrine. And what I mean by that is that there are very few truths that are as significant when it relates to understanding who you are as the simple truth that you are made in the image of God. Now, it probably doesn't mean what you think it means. That's okay. I want to spend some time talking about the idea that we're made according to his likeness and how that rightly affects every single thing we do. When you understand what it means to be created in the image of God, it affects the way you think, it affects the way you interact with others, it tells you and informs you as to why some things are important and other things are not important. It should set a trajectory for everything that you do in life, not predominantly informing the what you do, but more importantly, informing how you do it. And I think that all of the issues we've been talking about today are addressed by that one truth of being created in God's image. When we understand it and when we live according to it, then we will be living in line with God's purposes for us as people. Then we will find happiness and contentment. And then we will bring much glory to God. Let's close now in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you that you're sovereign, that you know all things. You know all that we've spoken about today and, and so much more. And we trust in your sovereignty and in your wisdom. You have placed us here at this time in this society. And we understand that not only is that not an accident, but that you intend for us to thrive to flourish and to bring you glory in this cultural moment. So we do pray that you would help us to continue to think specifically about the truth that we're made in your image and how that rightly addresses so many of the problems that we face. We do commit ourselves to you. We ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. In his creation, God made mankind, quote, in his own image. That's according to the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 1. What could that possibly mean? Does it mean that he made us to be part of a vibrant, God-fearing community? Well, this could be part of the answer, but as we survey the Bible and look at his chosen people, we see that wasn't always the reality. Weren't the Israelites his chosen people and God-fearing? Now fast forward to now. Some of our Lord's gospel-believing churches could contain many discontented, unhappy people. 
If you'd like to learn more about finding true contentment in Jesus Christ, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Press broadcasts on the homepage, and there you'll find an archive of relevant Bible teaching, including this series. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. This weekend, if you don't have a church you call home, come worship with us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you'll join us on Monday for part four in our series, Disillusioned, Distracted, and Discontent. I'm Matt Williams. Hope you have a great weekend, and thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.